Hi, this is Greg from Explorer Maps in Missoula, Montana. We're excited to collaborate with the Trail Less Travel, helping connect people and place through art and storytelling. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. We are on location on the Frederico River, which is between St. Simons Island and Brunswick, Georgia. We are sitting on the boat Tranquility, which is 29 feet long. The owners, Kate Zider and Fabio Brunazzi. They've been sailing on this boat for about two years now, and it's docked here at the Frederico Yacht Club Marina. And what they're doing is spending some time with a mentor, who I just met, who's a couple boats down right now, a man who's sailed around the world twice and fixing up their boat, learning from him, and then they are going to set back to the high seas and maybe head back to Panama. We're going to talk to them more about that in a little bit. Kate is originally from Pittsburgh, and Fabio is from Milan, Italy. They met at a bus station in Panama City, heading towards the San Blas Islands. They were married in August of 2014, and thank you so much to the both of you for meeting with me, inviting me here to sit on your boat today and talk to you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Kate, where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in a neighborhood in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Probably one of the common stories of kids growing up in the 80s and 90s in Pittsburgh was that you hung out in the woods. Certainly in my neighborhood now, a lot of these woods have been you know, built in with subdivisions and stuff. So I'm glad that I grew up at the time that I did. But typically you were played in the street, you rode your bikes, you roller skated around and you got into the woods where you could hide stuff or set a small fire <laughs> and and basically just hang out with this little culture of kids and adolescents and then teenagers and get into kind of limited amounts of trouble within your own neighborhood. So Pittsburgh's really hilly. There's kind of spaces between the neighborhoods that might be really steep. So they weren't built up all at the same time. And some of that is changing, but being out in the woods was, you know, these aren't like grand redwood forests or anything, but there was enough nature that I got to see it every day. Fabio, same question for you. Where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in Milan, actually in the suburbs, like 15 miles out of downtown. And for me, the closest nature was the mountains, the Alps. Myself, I had the parents, my parents in their childhood they were quite adventurous so they will head out with a group of friends and do some mountaineering and camping and same for Kate and Pittsburgh Italy used to be less developed so the adventure they lived back there they were more free than what was available to me back then 
So what I inherited from them was the spirit of adventure. Then when they decided to have a family and have me and my sister, they work regular jobs so they limited their roaming out in the adventures but they will take us in uh, weekend trips and camping we also had a house in the mountains where we spent some time with friends and also going to Sardinia for example which is a wonderful beach place in Italy we wouldn't just go to the beach regularly we would hike to the beach for an hour and a half bringing sandwiches and water and everything we couldn't find on our way so that gave me a good amount of interest and right now I am living the life that my parents made wanted to live the adventure they may wanted to live I'd like for both of you guys to really take us there you guys had different backgrounds, but how did it differ as far as the smells and the scenery, the environment? I remember particularly one of our favorite beach was called Cala Golorice. It's a very small rocky beach on a very pristine and transparent waters. And in order to get there, you would have to hike hour and a half, two hours downhill from a higher mountain where you will leave the car. There was no road going there. It was very hot. It was August in the summer and very arid. The bottom of the sea was rocky, so you had to see a lot of fish. And the water was so transparent, so it was very, very rewarding the problem was going back it was all uphill so it was easier to get to the beach than to go back so i mean my street as a kid was my whole universe was really just the street i grew up on and the big adventures that we would have would be summer vacations when we had a vw vanagon actually it's funny because that's such a hippie car you know and my parents were really like straight laced my dad had a super high tight haircut he's like a jarhead haircut you know as a younger guy and my mom's really a beautiful woman with coiffed blonde hair. And anyway, so, you know, you can imagine us, there's four kids and two adults, and we're all packed into this car. And the VW van again come down to the Sea Islands here. Where we are now is very close to where I would come as a kid, as it turns out, and into this environment of swampy and alligators and a lot of critters in the water and a lot of shorebirds and wading birds and things. So as an adult, kind of looking back on the place I grew up in, you know, my street in Pittsburgh was my whole world, and Pittsburgh is this massive industrial Rust Belt city. This whole big context was actually happening around me that I was still so zoomed in on. And now we've done this massive trip and traveled all this way to basically come back to a place that my dad and my mom brought me to on our little family adventures. I've been actually thinking a lot about myself as a child lately, and this particular environment that I'm in now really reminds me a lot of what we did as a family. And for someone who just tuned in, tell us about where we are right now. So we're on sailing vessel Tranquility with Captain Fabio Bernazzi <laughs> at the tiller, which is disinstalled. The tiller is the steering apparatus for a boat. It's the stick that turns the rudder. And our boat right now is kind of in various states of disarray. Everything is a little bit flaking and, and dusty. It's under renovation. We're floating in the Frederica River between St. Simons Island and Brunswick, Georgia. What would you call this waterway that we're in right now? Some call it almost part of the intercoastal waterway. The coastal Georgia is really one of the best kept secrets of the east coast of the United States. 
in coastal Georgia, you've got 100 miles of coast, and you've got over one-third of the remaining intact salt marsh in the whole east coast of North America. The geology of it is a longer story, but essentially you have a string of, of barrier islands that are called sea islands, and those are beachy on the ocean side and then marshy on the backside. And there's anywhere between four and 10 miles between these islands and the mainland. And that's all salt marsh and tributaries of inland rivers that are mixing with the ocean water that's coming in through the inlets. And so it's brackish water. And it's an ecosystem that's very important. It's very resilient. It's a crossroads. And it's where a lot of animals and wildlife transiting. This is also a place where it's a cradle. It's a feeding grounds. It's a cradle. It's a place that's a key element of a life cycle of massive amounts of wildlife. You can tell maybe it's a special place for me. (laughs) For someone who is interested in coastal systems and resilience, climate change, and all of these things, Georgia Coast is a very interesting place to study. So the barrier islands here are relatively undeveloped if you're comparing it to like, say, Florida or South Carolina, which means that you can still see at play this geologic formation and sand sharing systems. So the barrier islands are generated over epochs, I guess, or over that geologic time, which goes way, way, way back, and are gradually incorporated into the landmass. So if you go inland, if you're in Brunswick and you drive up to Jessup, Georgia, you go over a number of sand hills, and what you're actually sensing are barrier islands that have been incorporated into the mainland. And each one of those is associated with a different geologic era. And then now what we're in geologically is called the anthropogenic area, which is the era that's been influenced by human beings. Time will tell if we continue to form the land in this way or if sea level rise and other man-made influences are going to tip the scales in another direction if these islands will be eventually underwater. We are on location on the Frederico River between St. Simons Island and Brunswick, Georgia, sitting on the 29-foot boat Tranquility, owned by Kate Zeider and Fabio Bernazzi. Fabio, Kate just spoke about the history of this area that we're floating in, but I would just like for you to look over your right shoulder and describe to the listeners what you see 365 degrees around you outside the boat. Stand up if you'd like. Okay, I'm standing up. That makes it easier. So right now I'm facing St. Simon Island, which, as Kate explain is one of the sea islands. We are in between the ocean, which is after St. Simon, keep going east from my position, and the mainland, which is on my back, going west. The Frederica River is one of the millions of little inlets that the coast of Georgia has. And the coast of Georgia is very tricky about the navigation. In fact, we talked about the intracoastal waterway, which is just one river down going west, so it's behind me. So the intracoastal waterway is a waterway that goes from Key West up to the St. Lawrence River. This was built by the Army Corps of Engineers, some people here from the U.S. that really digged and made this infrastructure, which sometimes is called the ditch. So that gave many vessels the ability to sail northbound or southbound in protected waters without being offshore. So we are actually in between the intracoastal waterway and the ocean in a safe, repaired anchorage where they also build some docks. If I turn north, I see the Morningstar Marina and there's also a bridge, the Torres Causeway. It's about five o'clock, so it's time for people who works on St. Simon Island, where the rich people are, 
to come back to their presumably poorer houses on the Brunswick side. So we are facing here also a very stratified income disparity. Usually the sea islands are very fancy and rich and they have beautiful nature, while the inland is more humid and more right into the marsh. So the sea islands are very pretty and that made the destination for rich people having their holiday house and spend some nice time. In fact, if I turn 180 degrees to the south, I will go to the next island with this Jekyll Island, which is where the Federal Reserve was founded. And the state of Georgia, it's a state island. Jekyll Island is the first island we stopped by in this place. When we pulled in this St. Simon Sound, we docked there at the marina and we were looking for something very good to eat because we had spent several days at anchor in Sapelo area so we were kind of tired and hungry. We ended up eating one of the delicacy of this area which is the low country bowl which is a stew. It's a bowl where corn, sausage and shrimp and crab legs and anything else you want to put it are all boiled together and then you eat it and it's simply delicious so if you ever traveled in these sea islands you have to try some low country ball and some oyster roast definitely in the winter i'm speaking with kate zider and fabio brunazzi kate and fabio met at a bus stop in panama city I'd like to talk to you guys both about how you came to be in Panama City at the same time. So at that time, I was living in New York. I had been living there for over a decade. And so by that time, I had kind of perfected the process of short trips into as wild a place as I could possibly get for under you know X amount of dollars. I used to live in Ecuador, and I've traveled in Peru and Colombia, and I love the region. I had never been to Central America, and I found a good flight to Panama City. Actually, on my first trip to Panama, I did not meet Fabio, but I fell in love with Panama, and I realized that there was so much packed into that tiny country that was so accessible to me. I came home and immediately booked a second trip. When I was in Panama the first time, I had seen and heard about Cunayala. I'd seen Cuna people and I'd heard about Cunayala, the region where it's an autonomous indigenous area. There's just beautiful islands and community of people who I just thought were beautiful and fascinating. And I really wanted to travel there. It's very thin in tourism infrastructure there. And so when I was home and I was researching, I found the boat that ultimately Fabio was working on as a tourism option. And so I decided to try a sailing adventure. It was a kind of like a backpacker sailboat where you could just sign up as one person. I signed up and I came back to Panama and that morning on my way out to Cunayala, there's not like a whole bus lines running all day to Cunayala. You go all together one time in the morning. The pickup spot was on a corner outside of the park in the neighborhood Cangrejo and so there was another person standing there in the dark. It turned out to be Fabio. Our bus driver turned out to be late because of my previous trip. I was very proud of myself that I knew something. Oh, there's a coffee place that's open in 24 hours. Why don't we go have coffee? And I was also forcing him to speak Spanish with me because I didn't know that he was Italian and that Spanish was his second language. I just assumed that he was Panamanian or something. And so I kept speaking Spanish to him so proud that I could speak Spanish. And he kept speaking English to me, knowing that I was American. 
you know, he wanted to practice his English. So that was a little weird back and forth during our conversation. I was enforcing that we were speaking in Spanish about my job and wastewater and all kinds of obscure environmental issues. And I was very proud of him for staying awake. So the first time I met Kate, it was the same situation. I was in Panama and I was working for this boat. I was the skipper of a 50-footer boat who was taking people to visit the San Blas Islands. San Blas is the Spanish name which this island are known for. Cunayala is the indigenous name and the indigenous people have permission from the government of Panama to rule their own land. So it's a kind of an autonomous region. So they're very proud about being Cunayala. That's the name they prefer. But it's well known as Sambles Island too. So I was there and I was taking a couple of boat trips per week, taking about nine people every trip. So I was showing the islands. We were eating seafood, fished by ourselves or by the Indians who were selling it to us. And it was a really great time of my life because I was single, I was in a beautiful place and I was meeting people from all over the world. So I was captain of this boat and whenever I had free time, I would travel to Panama City just to have a couple of days of rest or just do something else, being out of a very remote area, which is beautiful but also remote. Sometimes it's nice to be in a city and have things to do. So I was there and then obviously another trip was coming on and I had to come back to work. So I was at my bus stop. They were actually not real bus. They are four by four vans. They go to this very steep and tortuous road through the mountain of Cunayala down to the sea. And at this stop, I found Kate. (laughs) What did you think when you saw me walking down the street? Kate was walking down the street. I would say that she was more or less dressed as Indiana Jones will be dressed. She had kind of an explorer outfit. That was the very, very first impression. And I said, oh, she really wants to go and have some adventure in this trip. So she really had the right outfit to do that. Yeah, I was positively impressed by this first appearance and also kind of looking weird there. But it was five in the morning, so my senses were not very aware So, what you thought when you saw this guy waiting for the bus? I'd actually already seen your picture when I booked on the website, and so I was looking forward to meeting Fabio already. We are sitting here on location on Kate and Fabio's boat, Tranquility. It's a 29-foot sailing boat. We're sitting on the Frederico River, which is between St. Simon's Island and Brunswick, Georgia. I'd like to talk to you guys now about this place that you were both heading to after you met at the bus stop and fast forward a few years you ended up getting married August of 2014 congratulations it's an honor and a privilege to be on a newlyweds boat (laughs) it's beautiful it's great I'm excited for you guys I'd like to talk to you about this place that you were heading to in more detail the San Blas Islands and the people that live there take us there the San Blas Island also known as Cunayala is a group of 
more than 300 islands that is on the Caribbean side. It's between Panama City and Colombia. It's right at the border. Those islands are very near to the coast. So the mainland is basically a virgin forest, like completely pristine forest. In fact, there's no road that connects Colombia to Panama. My understanding of Darien Gap, although I have not been there myself, is that I've lived in Quito, Ecuador, and met a lot of people on the Gringo Trail, basically is what it's called, right? It's just too wild. There's a deep ravine, and it's not passable. Also, from what I understand about the boat trip between Colombia and Panama, it's also not a pleasure cruise. (laughs) I've heard it's been pretty rough at times, too, so it's not an easy trip either way. If you want to go from Panama to Colombia or vice versa, you can either fly or you can take a boat. In fact, there are a lot of people who go on a boat trip from Panama to Colombia through the San Blas Islands, which are very beautiful. Talking a little more about the inland, which I visited partially, because most of it is really, really untouched by humans. And the Kunas, these indigenous people, have total rights on their land, and they won't let anybody go on their land they won't let anybody in and you know rumor says that there's gold in these rivers that come down from the mountains and they don't mind it they are not attracted by money they don't have this desire and they really are in a challenging situation because of sea rising so all these islands that are up to 15 miles to the coast there's the closest islands are usually at the mouth of rivers for the access to fresh water. They have populous villages. The density of their villages is incredible. Like on a tiny island, there might be 300 to 500 people living in small bamboo huts. The islands that are more kind of the barrier islands towards the end of the reef are used more as farms for coconuts. So there will be one family taking care of all the farmland and harvesting coconuts and trading that with Colombian boats that come along the islands bringing other goods like sugar and you know anything they will exchange for coconut. It's a very interesting place. The Kuna people have very intact culture. I had the chance to learn a lot about Kunas because my first mate on board the boat I was working was a Kuna. His name is Dino. We sometimes with this boat, Kate and I really think that we want to go back there and spend some time with the Kunas because it's a really great time over there. It's a very protected area and the life is so simple. People really don't have much and they still are very happy and they live very long. There's people pass easily the hundred years of age. It's a very good way of life, I have to say. I'm really proud of the Kunas. What do you guys think that we can learn in this civilization that we're at right now? You know, we've got big fancy houses over here on St. Simon's Island and semi-large fancy houses over in Brunswick, and life's a bit more complicated. So what can we learn in the United States from the Kuna people? I think the one thing central to our boat project here that we picked up there and also by traveling elsewhere, is this idea of renouncing. In order to live on a boat this size, 
you just have to get rid of almost everything you own. You just really can't have many attachments. So, in fact, that was one of the things that impressed me so much with him. You know, I had this fantasy of going to Kuniala and being like, wow, like seeing this place and there's a lot of beauty there. And, and then whenever I got there and he's living there full time and working, I'm like, wow, this guy figured it out. Like, how did he do this? You know, and it really had a lot to do with letting go of a lot of his life in Italy. You know, he didn't let go to his relationships. He's still so close with his family and friends, but, you know, he let go of the suits and the ties and his mom still has a lot of them in his closet when he goes home and he looks very good when he puts them on. But the physical objects do weigh you down and the responsibilities involved with a big property and lots of and, you know, very expensive things and protecting those things, you know, and wanting more things once you have those things. I mean, that stuff just doesn't exist there. And the idea of what you have being enough releases you from, you know, so much wanting. And I still struggle with that because I want stability. And we just got married. You know, if we want to have a family, you know, I get very caught up in like, we can't do that. We don't have enough stability or we don't have enough. And to me, that translates to money. Stability equals money in my society. So... I still kind of struggle with that, but I think that seed was planted there, and I see it in other elements of my family. So here we are, you know, he's younger than me, I'm living in New York, and I'm employed, and I kind of have a normal life, you know, and then I jettison everything to buy a boat and shove off with this guy. You'd imagine maybe my family would be a little irked, (laughs) or a little questioning of this person, and my family really loves Fabio. And in particular, we have champions in my aunt is a Franciscan nun. And so, you know, this unmarried couple living together on a boat and there's this religious community. We went and gave a presentation at the mother house at the convent whenever we were in Pittsburgh and, you know, had the little family reunion. Hold on, Fabio's pointing at something. Oh, it's a little guy. So we get these little animals on the dock and that's a mink. It's just a cute little dude. He runs around. We get those and we get otters and we get a lot of night herons, night feeding birds. And right now there's a lot of hooded merenganser who are little ducks that migrate here. And they're just, they're super punk rock. Like they have these little mohawks and they're just amazing. They come right up to the boat and like do flips in the water. They're my favorites. But, and so you think about who else in human civilization has renounced things, you know, so these religious orders who have just devoted themselves to the practice and any type of guru that you could think of, really. So maybe Dino's one of our gurus. We never put him on the list, but he's there. For me, it's renouncing things. And right now, since we've been on land, because we're here to do all this business, the things that I've noticed that we accumulate, we're very sensitive about getting new things. And so even though it's exciting to kind of have a bookshelf to put books on, it's really embedded in me now triple checking, you know, like, oh, I want this, you know, oh, do I need it, you know, and then can I afford it? And then, you know, what will I do with it if I get back on the boat, you know, and so by the end of that process, I've put so many things back on the shelf. And uh, for environmental reasons, for philosophic reasons, for spiritual reasons, you know, it's a very different chapter for me. Incidentally, in Samblas, I learned how to meditate. I was always interested in meditation, but I didn't really have anybody who could introduce me to that. I did some internet research sometime, but I never really started. I remember finding myself, when I was saying goodbye to the group, I spent just three days with them and they were all excited about what they did and they were just leaving. And then I had to clean the boat and get ready for the next group to come. But there were some moments when I was done or I was too tired to continue that there was nothing to do. 
because the kunas don't really have a bar life. They don't go out at night. They don't have electricity, so life really starts at 5 in the morning or 5.30 when the sun is up and ends at 6.30 when the sun is down. So for me, it was something new. So in Venezuela, life was simple too, but the culture was more like party and enjoy life and friends. So I had a lot to do. But with the Kunas, I would find myself after six with no much to do. And so I was on my boat and sometimes I was staring at one of the best sunset ever like we are about to do here right now there's gonna be a nice sunset soon so I was just starting to appreciate that and I start to try to meditate by myself without any instruction without any rule let's try to meditate and then when I moved to the States I was in Newport Rhode Island and I found a group that was a Zen meditation group which was giving instruction and having sitting meditation weekly and then I started and I found it very very similar with the thing I was doing there so simple type of life really gave me time to appreciate the present I was living in so that was really interesting for me Hello this is Greg Robitaille from Explore Maps in Missoula, Montana for as long as I can remember I have been amazed at how my brother Chris turns his creative thoughts into the most incredible art imaginable. When we were young kids growing up in Toronto, one day our mom said, Chris, please go take a nap. But as fate would have it, I think he heard mom say, Chris, go make a map. And thus, I like to think that's when Explorer Maps was born. Many years later, we have now rendered more than 60 hand-drawn artistic story maps of travel destinations worldwide, all created with the intention of connecting people and place and helping communities raise awareness for the conservation of our public lands and the wildlife and distinct cultures that inhabit these amazing areas. So please come along and join Chris and I on this educational and inspirational journey using hand-drawn maps as the vessel to help tell these unique stories. Please be sure to use promo code MANDELA for your discount when visiting explorermaps.com. I'm speaking with Kate Zider and Fabio Brunazzi. Kate's originally from Pittsburgh and Fabio is from Italy. We're recording on the boat, the sun has just set. Kate has a degree in biology and environmental planning. Fabio, a degree in psychology. They have been sailing in this boat for just over two years. Fabio has about six years of sailing experience in Kate 4. Kate went to a sailing school in New York City after meeting Fabio. I'd like to now talk to you, Kate, about some current environmental issues, specifically about seawater levels rising. This has always, of course, been an issue in my field of work, but coming to live at sea level, you're really thinking about it all the time in a different way. And we've traveled at this point most of the East Coast in our boat. And so what I've been able to observe are the really diverse responses that towns and cities have to sea level rise. You know, I've learned that there's something called 
tsunami-ready cities, a certification process. There are aspects of green infrastructure that are being developed to combat storm surge and sea level rise here in Georgia. The existing natural environment of these marshes and the barrier islands in their natural state and conserving that, protecting that, is really kind of one of the main strategies here. But in more developed areas, for example, Norfolk, Virginia, where we were last November, It's a very built-up area, and the protections and the adaptations to sea level rise are similarly engineered solutions. And then some areas that really are not responding, there were towns that we would go through that would just have regular salt water in the street, you know, regular flooding at high tide, and you're starting to see, especially I'm just thinking of areas in the Outer Banks in North Carolina where they kind of have to move back some of the beach houses already or just in completely populated places. And while this is nothing new, I've also become aware of just historically coastal peoples needing to retreat at times, that the sea is an aggressive thing, (laughs) storms taking out populated areas and people rebuilding or choosing to move or adapting to the environment. Certainly something is happening that's a little bit different these days. I've considered myself a student again because just like everybody else and even many scientists and certainly a lot of politicians, this is not completely understood. I don't understand a lot of this. And so I'm learning from the places that we visit and my own experience, which is really a privilege right now that I get out of this traveling portion of my life. I want to ask you about composting because you said you're, you know, you're really into composting and I got a wonderful tour of your guys's sailboat before we started the interview. Right now they're fixing it up and I saw that in the front of the boat there's a spot where people usually sleep and you guys have turned that now into a spa and a composting toilet. So tell me more about both of those things. I've done a lot of composting in my day, but I got to tell you this is some next level composting. And we don't have our system up and operating yet. This is just a glimmer in our eye. But it is something that sailors do. Mostly everything to do with this boat, we are learning from people who have already done it. YouTube videos and friends, we have learned that direct knowledge from other human beings who have actually done things is definitely the best way to go. And so we have a friend right now who has a composting system for their toilet. And we tried out a conventional toilet for a while, and or a conventional you know, boat toilet. And it's just gross. I just got to say, ladies, if you're going to live on a boat, call me because I got to tell you some stuff. <laughs> compost toilet on a boat sounds like a horror. I am hopeful. I, I trust enough the compost decomposition process to feel like it's going to be a step up. But you're going to have to ask me later about how it actually went because we haven't operated the system yet. So more will be revealed. You contribute the nitrogen via your number two. And then you need to incorporate carbon and a dry material. So sawdust is something that's readily available. This is all happening within a container. So it might look like a toilet seat from the top and the outside, but there would be a container underneath. It's a sealed system. You'll need to have a vent. But if you have the right balance of nitrogen and carbon, the air that's venting should, big asterisks on should, not be malodorous. All these systems are engineered to separate urine from feces, and that's another thing that contributes not to generate weird fermentation inside the bucket. So there's ready available toilets already on sale, which are designed and built to do that. We are considering those, but we will probably also consider design our own custom-made situation to fit exactly the space and to have the best containing proportions 
So how a regular head, which is the boat word for toilet, works, a regular toilet you will find in a house, you have a pumping system that works through pipes that you can directly discharge overboard if you are over three miles from the coast according to US Coast Guard regulations or you can retain in a holding tank for us living in a very small boat 29 foot this system it requires a lot of space that we don't have so a holding tank all this pipe has to be vented and they've, they have to run over the water line it's very complicated and takes space. So our idea is to use the old space we originally had the head in to storage and have a more composting toilet that we're going to try very soon. I'd like to segue now, Fabio, to talking to you about life on the boat. What have you learned about living on a boat? Whoever's listening to this show, wherever you live, how can we learn about what you guys have learned from living on a boat? Okay, so one of the very first insight you have after you live for a long time on a boat is that trash counts. You actually generate trash and you're gonna end up carrying your own trash because there's no way to dispose it unless you want to discharge it, but that's pretty lame and very sick. So another strategy whenever you're provisioning and packing your boat is try to avoid packaging that then you will have to deal with. It's very important on a boat to be aware of that trash is a reality. And plus, when you are sailing, you soon going to realize that the sea is our biggest trash bin. So it's amazing the quantity of trash that floats everywhere in the sea. One time I saw a refrigerator floating, which can be also dangerous for marine traffic, especially for small boats like ours. Trash is something that you start to become really aware of once you decide to live on a boat. For me, I would say cook your own food. So on a boat, you know, one of the things that Fabio really pressured me to accept was to have a full stove on the boat. So we have a very small boat, but we have kind of a large oven. We actually had to cut out a couple shelves worth of storage in order to install it. But on the boat, it's just paid back in multitudes what we sacrificed in space because I made peach cobbler on the boat. At a certain point, we're going to be able to have basically anything we want to eat cooked in our little floating boat if we provision right. So how that translates to being on land now, when we get on land, we're super excited. We want to be in society. We go out to you know a restaurant and we see other people. You get just kind of excited whenever you're on land. But then I quickly realized that I'm not eating the right foods and I'm also throwing money away. I'm all for supporting the local economy. We try to do that as much as we can. But cooking your regular meals at home, it lets us be together. It's something that we like to do together. It's the mainstay of our social life. It's kind of how we can say thank you or say that we appreciate people and we can make them dinner. And typically, you just have total control over what you put in your body and you can make a lot of better choices about your health. So on the boat, we have no choice but to cook our own food. (laughs) But it's good that we kind of went through that boot camp because now we can kind of cook in any kitchen. My dad had a question for you guys. He was wondering about what you guys eat on the boat. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit more from Peach Cobbler to see what else. I always try to eat whatever is available and fresh. Obviously, a good thing we can eat is pasta. 
Last year we left the 17th of November from New Bedford, Massachusetts. And we started to sail south because the winter was coming and uh, it was very, very tough. The icy gales started to blow and we had to move fast. So we started to eat a lot. And when I mean a lot, we were constantly eat, we were constantly hungry. And we usually were keeping a piece of salt pork in the bilge. It was called floor pork. <laughs> Because it was lying under the floor, which is, you know, relatively fresh part of the boat. So it can be used, especially in winter, to keep food. So we were just eating everything in pork fat and still losing weight. We were very skinny, by the way. And that's what we learned that actually a good diet is to live outdoor because your body will actually need to provide the calories you otherwise won't use if you sit in the house or you stay at the office so that's a very very important lesson we learned from this winter trip Fabio we talked to you about meditating in the San Blas Islands and I'd like to now talk to you Kate before we wrap it up about how you're able to create a space for yourself a space of tranquility you call it your spa and it's quite a small area in the boat but I think it's just important for people to know that you can create spaces like that anywhere in the world tell us about your space my luxury is to have some really good smells around me, you know, so we have this little tiny area where I can draw a curtain. I have my grandfather's shortwave radio, so we can always get some type of soothing music or at the very least some droning weather descriptions. And then we have a little wash bucket and uh, we get a teapot of water and some nice lavender soap or oil, a little candle or something like this. And I just say, I'm going to the spa and go back there and literally we're talking about you know like a two foot square footprint on the floor and a little place for me to sit I can't stress enough it's a small boat and I'm a tall girl so just kind of being able to be standing straight up or sitting comfortably and surrounded by just a little bit of tranquility and to pamper myself wash my hands and feet and you know look at my fingernails and maybe put on like a clay mask or something extreme like that. It's kind of like a small thing, but Fabio can attest that I would come out from there with a just totally different mood, which is important to Fabio for me, <laughs> for sometimes for my mood to be sharply corrected. It's just a little thing, but actually my friend Debbie, she just went off on a boat just a couple of days ago and I kind of felt like I had all this girl to girl sister advice for her, you know? One of the things was just bring a couple things like something that smells good, some type of soap that you like or some type of just self-care. We've been here on location on the boat Tranquility, which is floating on the Frederico River between St. Simons Island and Brunswick, Georgia. Thank you so much, Kate and Fabio, for letting me speak with you today on your boat. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'd like to end the show with three outdoor adventure tips from each of you. Okay, one important thing is stay dry as much as you can. We learned it so much. It's better to be dry than wet. I would start a collection of bandanas right away because you could use them to wrap your sandwich or wipe your nose, anything. Save all the bandanas you can. Eat warm food if you can. Eat cold food if you don't have any warm food. Try to get local knowledge from people who actually are from the area. Oh, go to the library. If you're in a new place, go to the library. They've got everything you need there, including Wi-Fi.
Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the community's source for adventure and conservation, information and inspiration. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, streaming live at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, you can find The Trail Less Traveled podcast everywhere podcasts are found. The Trail Less Traveled is a radio and podcast series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from some of the most remote locations around the world in order to bring you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We are incredibly excited to be collaborating with Explorer Maps, a small family business based in Missoula, Montana. Explorer Maps and The Trail Less Traveled are working together to bring cartography to life through storytelling, conservation, culture, history, and art. As members of 1% for the Planet, Explorer Maps donates a percentage of proceeds from every product sold to a variety of nonprofit organizations around the world. To date, Explorer Maps has donated more than $150,000 to more than 40 different organizations since they began in 2012. Through this unique relationship, between Explore Maps and the trail less traveled, we will continue our commitment toward connecting people and place by raising awareness for conservation of wildlife and wild places. You can get involved by supporting Explore Maps. They have over 60 hand-drawn story maps. They will be opening their world headquarters in Missoula, located on the corner of Inez and 3rd Street. And I hope to see you at the grand opening because I'm currently in Africa and I'm working on a project with Game Rangers International in Zambia and I will be providing a free multimedia adventure presentation at the new Explorer Map store on Saturday, November 18th at 7 p.m. If you've ever had a question for me regarding adventure, travel, or the past 20 years of recording The Trail Less Traveled, this would be a great opportunity to come and ask me a question in person. So set the date, Saturday, November 18th at 7 p.m. I will see you at the new Explorer Maps store. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. Until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege, and with privilege comes responsibility. Please get informed and get engaged. Use your voice on behalf of wildlife and wild places. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never spent the night with a mosquito.